John 6, verse 15 says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. Then the sea arose because there was a great wind blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. And Father, we just humbly ask that you would help us now to continue in an attitude of worship that, Lord, we would worship in spirit and truth by just letting the truth of your words speak to us by the power of your spirit. Please prepare us, Holy Spirit. Let us have an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church through this particular portion of your word. We don't want to hear wise or persuasive words of a man, Lord. We want to experience that demonstration of your spirit and your power speaking something directly to our hearts. Bless your word and teach us now, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what do you think really honestly matters the most in our lives? If you asked a number of people, probably in the American culture, you'd get answers like being comfortable, or maybe it's being in control, or perhaps it's even having life circumstances unfold exactly the way that we want them to go. But I have to wonder, is it perhaps really more that the most important thing in life is something more like developing and growing in our confidence that Jesus is Lord and that he is Lord over all, that he has all things under control. And I found in my own life and certainly looking at the lives of others as I interact with many people, that sometimes things have to actually get uncomfortable Sometimes things actually have to happen in a way where we endure things that go outside of our control. And sometimes even in order for us to really experience the power of the Lord, things have to unfold differently than we prefer them to unfold. Sometimes things have to almost fall apart at the seams and it seems things have to get more challenging in order for us to really be able to grow and increase in our confidence that Jesus is Lord. Sometimes it takes being in those situations uncomfortable, out of control. Circumstances aren't what I wanted them to be to really let us see he is Lord and to see his lordship and to see his power. And we see that taking place in our story we're looking at together this morning. I think there are certainly lessons for all of us in relation to that. Remember our backdrop. We saw it last time. Jesus has just done one of his incredible miracles. In fact, the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels where Jesus, with just five small pieces of bread and two small fish, has miraculously fed upwards to 10 to 15 thousand people in a crowd now this incredible miracle of doing so much with so little left a powerful impression upon the people in the crowds that were there that day so much so that it says verse 14 look at it then those men when they had seen the sign that jesus did said this is truly the prophet who has come into the world so as jesus did this incredible miracle and this specific miracle of giving bread and feeding 
thousands of people in the crowd, that specific miracle, it says, caused them to think of what's referred to there, Deuteronomy chapter 18, that this must be the prophet who's come into the world. Remember, Deuteronomy 18, Moses had prophesied there and in a sense had spoken of the Messiah, of course, Jesus, as we know him. And he had said that God was going to send another prophet, he said, like unto myself, a greater prophet than him, but a prophet that would be like him. Now, remember, Moses was used by God to orchestrate this thing that we refer to as what? The miraculous manna, which was what? Bread from heaven that came down and fed multitudes of hungry people. So Moses was used by God as a prophet to bring bread from heaven. And Moses also was used by God, remember, to be a deliverer, to liberate people from out under the bondage and the slavery of Egyptian oppression that they were under. Now, what did Jesus just do? Jesus just miraculously brought forth bread to feed thousands of people. And right now, at this point in time, historically, the Jewish people are currently under the bondage and domination of Roman rulership. And the Jews longed, almost as they did when they were in Egypt, they longed for a deliverer to come, for a strong king who would come to pass, who would actually liberate and deliver them from Roman rule and set them free politically. So the people are now excited because they're suspecting, wait a minute. Maybe this is that prophet we've been waiting for like Moses. He brought bread to feed the multitudes just like Moses did. And he looks like maybe he might be the one to now deliver us from the Roman bondage that we're under. And this fervor and zeal began to build for Jesus, the bread king, the king who seemed to have a whole lot of dough and a whole lot of influence. And maybe this could finally be the one to solve the nation's problems because he's got a lot of dough. Maybe he's the one that can possibly finally fix all the ills of the nations and fix the social concerns and so on and so forth. Well, that's the backdrop of why verse 15 we read, notice, therefore, in light of those things, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So notice, Jesus sensed the people's intentions were about to forcefully somehow push him into this role of, of being a political ruler to save and deliver them from their country's unpleasant conditions. However, that was not in line with the will of God. That was not in accordance with God's plan. And therefore, it says Jesus departed to avoid this unhealthy agenda. Remember, Jesus did not come to this earth the first time that he came to function in a way where he would become someone to fix all the social issues in the culture. He didn't come the first time to set up a throne or a kingdom and fix all the problems of the nation of Israel and all their social concerns. The first time Jesus came, he came to humbly live and to serve and to sacrifice and to die on a cross for the sins of humanity to resolve humanity's spiritual problems, not their social problems, to address the spiritual concerns, to set people free from the bondage and slavery of sin. Because see, the reality was that is a much worse oppression that was ruling over all the people in that day. The oppression of sin that was dominating and controlling so many lives. So Jesus came to fulfill the will of God to provide forgiveness of sins, 
to provide, if you would, deliverance from sin's enslavement and provide the gift of eternal life. And his first concern was that people would embrace his rulership, not as a king on a throne, but as the king on the throne of their hearts. That was his concern in his first coming, that he would be enthroned in the hearts of mankind, not to be a political or military king to deal with social issues between Rome and Israel. And when Jesus returns the second time, as he will soon do, he will then set up his throne. He will then rule as a king upon this earth as he rightfully should. However, it was not yet the time for this at this point. And the people, however, were wanting what they wanted. And they were about to try, and it says, verse 15 here, force Jesus, in a sense, to kind of try and get him to do something, to take control and to make him fix the nation's problem the way they wanted him to. Do you see what the text says there? It says, Jesus perceived. He sensed what they were about to do. The language is clear. The Holy Spirit tells us to take him by force. That is, they were going to try and take control themselves. It says they were going to try and make him a king. The idea is to force the Lord to do what they wanted him to do, to bring about their will. So Jesus, sensing this, departs to a mountain by himself alone. Now, note a few things here with me in relation to this. First of all, that Jesus perceived the people's wrong intentions and their unhealthy agenda. Jesus perceived the people's unhealthy agenda and their wrong intentions. He had full awareness of their desire and their intention, and he saw what they had in mind was incorrect. He could sense and he could see, perhaps though no one else knew, that what they wanted was contrary to God's will. It looked good on paper. It seemed politically correct. It seemed like it would fix everything that everybody was so upset about. But the reality is, is that Jesus, knowing best and knowing all, sees their unhealthy intentions. And so he deals with the people in the world. He deals with his disciples and followers. And he even deals with the circumstances in such a way accordingly in order to ensure what? That wrong and unhealthy things did not come to pass. To make sure that their plot was not, in a sense, unfolded. And though you and I as human beings, we don't always have a pulse exactly on what God's will is. Just like the crowd in that day, sometimes we have the wrong idea of what would be best. And we can't always be aware of what other people's intentions are in every situation. But I'm really thankful, aren't you, that Jesus perceives the intentions of every human heart. And he knows the reasons why people want what they want. And he knows the motivations for why people are trying to bring to pass what they want to bring to pass and why we or others may want or plan or pursue something. And if and when Jesus perceives in some way that that is not an unhealthy thing or uh, a healthy thing, and if Jesus recognizes that what people want is not in alignment with the will of God, sometimes he'll interrupt and stop it from coming to pass. I am greatly thankful in my life and the lives of others that when Jesus sees something is an intention in our hearts or a desire that we have that is not in alignment with the will of God, that sometimes Jesus will come in and he will shut something down that's going on. And he'll close the door and he'll cause it to shut down if it's heading in a wrong direction. And at times the Lord may be sensing or knowing more than we do in our lives, you may find, may come in, and he may shut something down. And you're thinking, oh, well, we need to bring this to pass. This is, it's got to go in this direction. I really want this. And sometimes the Lord says, I know that you want that, but that is not what I want for you, and it would not be best for you. 
And I perceive the motive in your heart. I sense where this is going. And sometimes the Lord in his gracious love for us, because he knows best, will not allow it to come to pass. Take note secondly, and I find this important as well, verse 15 makes it clear to us in the story that Jesus will not be forced to do anything. It does not matter how ambitious people may be or pushy or forceful people may get. Jesus is never going to be forced to do anything. He's not like a man who can be manipulated. You know, Jesus, it says here, the people are intending to take him by force and make him be their king. They're about to get forceful here and make what they want come to pass. But despite what they aggressively are after or diligently intend to do, Jesus does not consent. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that Jesus here doesn't allow it to happen and that he will not be forced to do something that is not in alignment with the will of God. That kind of seems to contradict the concept of a, a prosperity gospel type concept where you can name it and claim it and blab it and grab it and you just rub the genie and tell him what you want in faith and he will do it because he must because you've claimed it in faith. Listen, we can't force Jesus to do anything. He's not a cosmic genie. He's called the Lord of all. He won't be forced to do anything that's outside of the will of God. He won't be compelled or pressured. He's not some weak pushover. He's not some person who's going to bow to the whims and the wishes of whatever I want or serve my whims uh, and everyone else's among humanity. Perhaps, listen, I, perhaps it works in this world. Perhaps in this world it works that the squeaky wheel gets the grease finally and if you push hard enough or you manipulate well enough or you bribe good enough or you pay well enough that you can compel and pressure and force people to do what you want. But the Bible says God is not a man. He's not a man. He doesn't operate in the same way humanity does. And unlike people, Jesus will not be manipulated or pressured to do what we want him to do. He determines and does what is best for us. He is the one that remains Lord no matter what humanity is doing and he rules over all and I'm thankful sometimes he even overrules if necessary. And it's only for our benefit and to remind us that really to try and force the hand of the Lord in some matter is a really vain effort. And perhaps you've done that before. Perhaps you've experienced that reality that maybe before you've tried to force the hand of the Lord in some matter. How does that unfold? It's usually a pretty vain effort. It's usually a pretty frustrating and discouraging process. And a lot of times if you try and force the hand of the Lord, it just backfires and makes things worse. It gets more and more messy. So because Jesus doesn't want them to allow to bring their, their agenda to pass, it's contrary to God's will. The other accounts of this same story, Mark tells us this. Listen, Mark says, immediately Jesus made, that is, he compelled them, his disciples, to get into the boat and to go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And then when he sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. So Mark fills in a little more details here of what verse 15 says, that Jesus perceived they're about to make him king by force. And it just says in John's gospel here that he departed again by the mountain alone. Mark tells us that what he actually did is he first immediately compelled his disciples to leave and go across the sea, as our story tells us. He then sent the multitudes away. And when he sent them away, then he departed up into the mountain 
alone to go and pray. So again, take notice, Jesus took control of the situation so it didn't unfold in a counterproductive way. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing when Jesus takes control and sometimes overrules maybe our own interests or the efforts of people. Thankfully, Jesus will take control of situations when needed to protect them from unfolding in a way that perhaps could be unhealthy or in some ways counterproductive. And if necessary, I found in my life that Jesus will exert his right as Lord for my best interest. And I appreciate that the Lord does that. I think it's a wonderful thing and he does it here in this situation. He says he sends the disciples away and why is he descending disciples away? Well, one of the reasons is this. It's because he doesn't want them to be misled with the wrong idea that the people are trying to persuade them with, that Jesus should become a political king and a military ruler. Seeing the unhealthy idea of the people that contradicts his will, the language indicates from Mark's gospel, again, Jesus immediately compelled or made them go away. It indicates that he was urging them to leave and really being somewhat stern about it, the language indicates. The idea is that Jesus, in essence, as this is beginning to unfold, looks at the disciples and they're probably getting excited. King, this is, this is not bad. King, we never thought this was going to happen peter you'll make a great prime minister matthew oh just treasure absolutely you're good with numbers tax guy and and and, and they're probably getting excited and jesus says get in the boat wait a minute lord they're offering you to be king. get in the boat get in the boat and leave and see some of us were like that lord oh this, this is exciting look what's going to happen and the lord says uh, no it's not get in the boat but lord it's, we've been with no get in the boat and leave and Jesus sends them across the water at this point here because he does not want them to be misled by the incorrect ideas and have a wrong perspective on what the will of God was now please keep something in mind as we look at the story of the storm Jesus instructed disciples to leave he commanded them to get in the water and to cross that sea now that's very important because I want you to consider this Jesus did not overlook the forecast. It wasn't as if he went, oh, by golly, I forgot action knew. I, I didn't realize one of those storms. I can't believe I was so, you know, I just must have been caught up in too much. He knew the bad weather was coming. It's not that Jesus accidentally had them go out into that storm. Jesus knew, listen, that his instruction and guidance to his followers was going to lead them to pass through stormy waters. He commanded them to go into that. He was fully aware that apparently struggling in a storm was a safer place for them to be than being comfortable on the shore and getting wrong ideas about God's will. And sometimes the same is true in our life. Sometimes it is safer for you and I to be struggling at the oars in stormy waters than to be comfortable and complacent getting wrong ideas about God's will and what God's intentions are for our lives. Being in step with God's will matters way more, let us remember, than being comfortable. Being in step with God's will. Being in the place where God wants us to be in our hearts and in our lives. So Jesus dismisses the crowds and Mark says he went up on the mountain and there he is praying Spending time with the Father, interceding the will of God comes to pass as they now head out into the water. Look with me, verse 16, our text continues saying, Now when evening had come, indicating many hours have now passed at sea, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, went over the sea toward 
Capernaum. So the disciples are what? Now simply obeying the command of the Lord. They're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. It says they went down to the sea, they got into the boat, and they started heading across the sea. Now, would you agree? Again, they're like you and I. They didn't read the end of the story. They didn't get the Holy Spirit's uh, you know, inference here that Jesus perceived what was going on. They're just living this out like you and I live out everyday life. And as they are, the disciples are just kind of told rather quickly, listen, get in the boat get out of here, go across the water. And more than likely, they don't know and understand all the reasons why Jesus is directing them in the way that he's directing them. It probably even happens somewhat abruptly. In fact, it may be that they're even maybe a little concerned or confused. What's the rush? And, and, and why are we changing course all of a sudden? And, and, and they didn't know exactly why it wasn't healthy to remain where they were, but they didn't need to know all the reasons and they didn't have to have all the full awareness. They were following Jesus as Lord and he had good reason. And he had full awareness and he had full understanding and knew what was best for them. And their role was to simply trust the leading of the Lord and obey in faith what Jesus had commanded them to do was to follow his direction and his leading. And for you and I this morning, an important application, if Jesus tells us to stop what we're doing, we should stop what we're doing. And maybe we don't know why he said stop, but he has reasons. If Jesus tells us perhaps to leave where we've been, to head to a new direction, then that's exactly what we should do. He has full awareness of all the details. We may not understand the reasons why or perhaps you know, have a full grasp of what does this mean and how come. But if Jesus directs us to do it or Jesus tells us to stop this and begin something new, we trust his lordship. We walk in faith. We're aware that he has full uh, understanding and we must not wait for all the reasons why and have all the proper explanation and the full thing mapped out. And I'll tell you, here's the reason why. Because we are called as Christians to walk by faith. And if you get a map with A through Z, that's not faith anymore. When you get a map that has A, and you don't get the next step until you go to B, that's called walking by faith. And the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. We must believe that he is and is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And he knows what's best. We have to follow the Lord's leading and our obedience to what the Lord asks us cannot always be dependent upon logically understanding everything, having every detail. We have to trust the Lord. He has reasons, obey his commands and just follow his leading. It tells us of Abraham, the one who's spoken of as a man of great faith in the scriptures. Hebrews 11.8 says, by faith, listen, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. Sometimes that's what it's like. I want you to go that way. Why? Because I want you to go that way. But I don't know where I'm going, Lord. Fine, I do. <laughs> I got it all mapped out. Just move that direction. Go by faith and obey. And again, notice, by faith he obeyed. It takes faith to obey the Lord's leading in our lives. So the disciples, they're obeying now. They go down to the sea. They get into the boat, verse 17. They head over towards uh, Capernaum crossing the sea. And verse 17 tells us things start to get interesting. And it was already dark. 
Jesus had not yet come to them. Remember, he didn't get in the boat with them. And then the sea, verse 18, arose because a great wind was blowing. So from, again, putting together the various accounts of Matthew 14 and Mark 6 and John's gospel here, it appears that the disciples get about midway across the Sea of Galilee. It's, again, only a a few miles or so wide. It's not a real, more like a lake as we talked about. They get about midway across the sea in their trip. And as they're about halfway, a violent, unexpected storm comes down upon the sea. And storm squalls were very frequent on the Sea of Galilee. It's not an unusual thing. Uh, The reason for that is the Sea of Galilee sits about 680 feet below sea level. And there are hills or, or mountains, whatever you want to refer to them as, that sort of surround the sea. And what happens, therefore, because of that, the differences in temperatures on the seacoast compared to the mountains cause these quick, unexpected storms to brew up. Because where you have the, the mountainous area there around the sea, there's cool, dry air. And then on the sea area itself, it's more semi-tropical with moist, warm air. And when these very contrasting air masses meet, here's your meteorological lesson of the day. When these two contrasting air masses meet, it causes, therefore, a violent storm to quickly arise. Typically, a very unexpected storm without any warning. So this is what's happening here. As they're there halfway through the the sea, it's dark. It says they're there alone, verse 17 tells us. Jesus is not with them. He went up on a mountain and told them just to leave. They're there all alone, and they're now caught in a bad storm at sea. And they're struggling and they're, 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 they're wrestling. It says, verse 18, the sea arose, a great wind was blowing. Matthew 14 says the boat was in the middle of the sea. Listen, tossed by the waves. You get the picture there, tossed by the waves. It says the wind was contrary. The idea is it's, it's coming against them in the way they're trying to go. Mark 6 says this, listen, he says they were straining at rowing because the wind was against them. So, so bad does the storm get, they have to drop the sails and there were typically oars on the boat and now I have to take out the oars and now they're in the middle of a storm, unexpected, struggling, bobbing up and down. The wind is blowing contrary to the direction I'm trying to go and now they're manually trying to row, straining, it says, at the oars. Now, take note here. Though they are struggling through stormy waters, They are actually right in the center of the will of the Lord. They are in the midst of storms, unimagined, straining and struggling, and they are right in the center of the Lord's will for their life because they're exactly where Jesus had told me. Jesus knew that they would have to pass through that storm, listen, to get to the destination that he intended for them. He knew that this was part of the process. They were simply obeying the Lord and as a result, they're in stormy times. Yet the storm and the struggles they were enduring were actually part of the Lord's will for their life. Now that's very helpful for you and I because perhaps you're in a storm today and your flesh or the voices of others or the ideas of the devil have made you think in the midst of the storm that you're in, am I outside of God's will or something? I mean, I can't remember doing something really stupid. And listen, let me say as a side note, if you're in a storm because you've done something stupid, that's because probably you did a few things stupid. And there are storms of correction. 
Talk to Jonah about that, remember? Jonah disobeyed the Lord. He didn't honor God. He made some poor choices. And the result of that, Jonah found him in a storm of correction where the Lord caused the storm to correct him and get him back on path. And sometimes we go through storms of correction. Hey, that's the love of the Lord too. God didn't kill and destroy Jonah. He put Jonah you know, through the washing machine, got his attention, caused him to a place of humility and brokenness and repentance and, and, and brought him to a place he needed to be. That was still for his benefit and then put him back on course where he wanted him to be. So there are storms of correction, but not every storm is a storm of correction. The devil wants to make us feel condemned and like that's the case. So what happens? We start to go through a hard time, a difficulty. Then people like Job's counselors come around us and we start to think, I must be out of God's will. Why is this so hard? Why am I in such a stormy, difficult, painful circumstance? Why is this happening? Why are things out of control? I feel like I'm having to strain just to keep my head afloat. Listen, you might be right in the center of the will of the Lord. You might be exactly where the Lord wants you to be. Maybe it's a storm where he's perfecting your faith, where he's going to reveal things to you about his power that you'd never see if you were comfy on a dry seashore sunbathing and relaxing. And you had to be in the middle of that storm to see some of the things that you do. Don't always get the impression that if times are hard or it's stormy, it may be that storm is a part of a necessary process for you to pass through in order for you to get to the destination and maybe even for others on board with you to get to the destination that the Lord intends for you to get to. And maybe the only way to get to that destination is it takes a storm, a really bad storm. But if that gets you and gets others to the destination on board with you, then that's not a bad thing in the end. In fact, perhaps this morning, maybe you're even in a storm today as the direct result of obeying the Lord. Isn't that why the disciples are in the storm? They're in a storm as a direct result of doing what? What Jesus told them to do. They told what Jesus told them to do and their reward in a sense for following the leading of the Lord. I bet you're excited to obey now, aren't you? <laughs> the direct result of obeying the Lord's voice and direction in their life, following the Lord leads them to a place where they are struggling as the result of that. Now, Following what the Lord leads you to do does not automatically mean, Christians, it's going to be easy sailing. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be struggles that are involved. It could be part of the process of even your obedience and doing what the Lord commands means you're going to have to endure stormy waters. Last I checked, the Bible that I read, it's not usually in the Bible promise books, that the Bible says that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That sounds like live godly, struggle. <laughs> Sometimes making righteous choices or obeying the Lord or following his leading may be, in fact, that one part of the process is the development of our faith and that actually obeying the Lord is going to bring struggles. Obeying the Lord in some decision, taking a stand for the Lord, saying, Lord, uh, that's not the direction you want me to go anymore. I need to go this direction or following the Lord into something he leads you to do. And then here comes enemy resistance. Or here comes the world, you know, that has a countercultural idea going to push against that. And sometimes obeying the Lord actually brings us into a storm, but it lets us see things about Jesus that we'd never see if we were comfy on the seashore. Because as you're in the storm, you start to see things about the Lord that you'd never see. They would have never knew Jesus could walk on water. And Peter would have never knew that he could walk on water. Matthew's account tells us if they weren't in the middle of a storm. 
People always focus on, oh, Peter, he took his eyes off the Lord, he sunk, that's Peter. Have you walked on water? In the middle of a storm, Peter's faith was so important, he did something miraculous himself. I say give the guy credit for a few steps on water rather than make fun of him for sinking. At least he got out of the boat. Most Christians won't even do that. Oh, he's in the boat. I'm going to try and walk on water. Lord, if that's me, tell me to come to you. Come on, Peter. Peter steps out of the boat. Hey, at least that guy's got faith. At least he tried something. At least he stepped out of the boat. He kept his eyes on the Lord. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? That is spiritual as well. Peter stepped out of the boat. He saw the power of God. He saw things. Sometimes our faith is strengthened only as our faith is strained and, and, and in a sense, you know, struggled through different things. But as his faith is exercised like a muscle, that's how it's increasing and how it's growing. Now, verse 19 tells us that as they're rowing, again, remember, straining against the oars, they get about three or four miles. Now, that puts them about midway across the sea. Now, I want you to notice, and they've been at this for hours it's evening, it's late into the night. I imagine this must have been pretty discouraging and disheartening to an extent. Here the disciples, pay attention, they've done exactly what Jesus asked them to do. They followed the Lord's leading and now it's been hard going, it's not smooth sailing and they've been rowing hard in the same direction obediently for hours, for a long time and after all that effort and after all that investment, they haven't made very much progress at all. They've hardly got anywhere. And they've put a ton of faithful effort into it. They've obeyed the Lord and they are rowing hard in the direction that they're supposed to go. And this difficult experience is sometimes a part of what we go through. Where we obey the Lord and here we are trying to be faithful and follow the Lord and you've hardly made any progress at all. And you feel like, I don't, feel, Lord, I thought you told me to do this. And here I am struggling at the oars and it seems we've been at this, and Lord, we've hardly made any progress. Lord, we've hardly gotten anywhere. We're not even halfway across yet and, and yet we've put so much into this. What's going on? And you know what? That causes, doesn't it, kind of disheartening? It causes doubt and discouragement. And to perhaps to begin to think about giving up. And that type of experience brings a powerful temptation and persuasion to want to give up. Because you think, why are we bothering doing this? Why are we bothering doing what's right? It, it, this thing is a struggle and we're not making hardly any progress. In those moments, there's a real temptation. But that's when there must be the realization that faithfulness from God's standard matters more than measured forms of success or progress. Remember, the Bible tells us that the words of Jesus tell us that the highest commendation from heavenly perspective is well done, thou good and faithful servant. doesn't say successful. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Now that's heaven's high accommodation. You stood at it. You kept rowing the oars. And you were faithful. And your hands were bloody and your hands were blistered, but you kept rowing. And you just kept rowing. And you just kept rowing. And that's all I ask you to do is just keep rowing. And the heaven's perspective gives that beautiful analogy. You know, this past weekend I was at my uh, daughter's race. She's doing crew where they 
row on, on an eight-man boat, and there was the last race of the year, and there was a, a, one of the biggest events that takes place up in Philadelphia there. And as they were rowing, uh, another boat actually kind of came into their path, and their oars got entangled, and they literally completely almost had to come to a stop, like dead in the water. Now, at that point, I would say it's fair to say it would have been pretty easy to get upset and angry and kind of get disheartened and defeated and say, well, we literally just stopped in the middle of the race here. Why bother at this point? We know we're not going to qualify time-wise, but instead, rather than that, they kept rowing and they finished the last 150 meters rowed across the line. Now, one of the things that they say in crew, I'm learning these little terminologies, is, is to the line. To the line, which means that you don't stop rowing until you cross the finish line. And I looked at that scenario as it unfolded and I watched them and I watched, oh my goodness, man, they just stopped completely in the water and they could have very easily just given up and why bother, what's the sense? But instead, they chose to demonstrate perseverance to the line. And they kept rowing. And they crossed the finish line. Not only they crossed that stinking finish line, but they got the fastest time that they got the entire year. And you know what? I look at that and I think, man, what an analogy for life. Because as we're following the course that the Lord puts us on, sometimes things are going to come in and they're going to interrupt and they're going to cause difficulties and struggles and we're going to get entangled and we're going to be tempted to stop rowing. But what are we going to do? We can turn around and Go back the other direction? That's going to solve a lot. Are we just going to sit there in the water and pout forever? That's not going to resolve anything. One thing we could do is fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and finished and said, it is finished. It wasn't easy, but it's finished. You know, Peter, excuse me, Paul tells us in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart. I appreciate that. Paul the Apostle said, let us not grow weary. He doesn't say, what's the matter with all you weary Christians? Stop getting weary. Paul says, let us. He included himself. Let us not grow weary in well-doing for we shall reap, he says, in due season if we don't lose heart. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And again, in our story here, remember, where's Jesus the whole time the disciples were in the storm? Let's not forget about him. He's not there, but where is he? It says he's up on a mountain. He's up on a mountain and he's watching them. Mark 6.48 says this. Listen, Mark says in his account, Jesus saw them straining at the rowing. Now that's both consoling and concerning to me. It's consoling in the sense that as we're straining and as they're straining, they're thinking, where is the Lord? Why did he bag out on us? He's never abandoned us before. Doesn't he see that we're straining? Yes, he sees. He sees. He is fully aware of the struggle that you're in. His eye hasn't come off you. He's fully aware that you're enduring. In fact, he is probably the proudest person that you could possibly imagine because he sees you staying, straining at the worst, being faithful. And, and, and he saw them struggling what they were enduring through and he sees you struggling what you're enduring through. And it says that he was up there praying. Now that to me is the part that's somewhat, in a sense, concerning but consoling is that Jesus lets them strain. 
And he just prays for them for a while before he ever comes down. But I think he was probably praying for their spiritual development. I can hear him saying, Lord, or saying, Father, <laughs> yeah, Peter's got a lot of wind in his sails. And we've got to knock a little more wind out of Pete's sails. Because we want to really use him when I come back to heaven. And so, Father, I want to go down there, but I know he's got to strain a little more because some of that pride and human fleshly energy and enthusiasm. And, 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 and I, can, I can just see him and the Father probably conversating about the different disciples as they're straining and they're struggling under it. And, and, and they're, they're, they're talking through the reality of how they're being developed and how their faith is growing and how this process would somehow be done usefully in their life. Well, eventually, thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave them there. It says, verse 19, when they had rode about three or four miles, then all of a sudden they saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So at the right hour, though it was probably much longer than the disciples preferred, you agree, at the right hour, when Jesus knew the timing was right, he comes to them and he reveals himself and his power. It says, they saw Jesus, look at the text, they saw him walking toward them, I have underlined, on the water. They saw him on the water. Notice, the sea that arose and had big waves and was causing them all kinds of trouble in the sea, no doubt, with waves that were over their head, it was all still under the feet of Jesus. And what was totally out of control and over their heads, it was all still under the feet of Jesus because Jesus is Lord over all. And that's an encouraging thing for us to realize as they see Jesus walking on this storm that was totally out of their control, that the stormy waters that rise over our head and all the hard things that are out of control that we deal with, it's all still under the feet of Jesus. It may be over your head, out of your control, but it's completely under the feet of Jesus still. And he is still reigning over it. The most threatening things in life are still under his authority. Nothing intimidates Jesus. Nothing intimidates Jesus. No problem, no calamity, no crisis, no difficulty. And I'm not diminishing that it's hard. They were straining. It was hard. They were terrified. They were struggling. But the wonderful thing is that you serve a rock-solid Savior who's not intimidated by anything. He's never biting his nails. Oh, my goodness. That is a storm. i never seen anybody in one of those before. Listen, for thousands of years, he's been taking people through storms. And he's been getting them to the other side. And he's been coming and bringing peace and calm at the right hour. And as Jesus sees them there, he eventually comes walking toward them. And that was not a common scene to see men walking on the water. So they get more terrified. Ah, who is there? What's going on? Now there's some guy walking out of the water and they're terrified. They're unsure. And verse 20 says, Jesus says to them, look what he says when they're terrified. It is I. Don't be afraid. It is I. Don't be afraid. He assures them they don't have to fear or worry any longer. It was him. The whole storm. It was him. And he says, listen, I'm with you. Though you didn't see me, I was still with you the whole time. I was still with you. I know you didn't see me with your eye, but it doesn't mean I wasn't with you. I was with you 100%. I was with you in the midst of that and his presence assured them that everything they were concerned about was going to turn out okay. It was going to turn out okay. You know, perhaps you're here this morning and maybe you're currently in a storm or struggling through something understandably worried or fearful or maybe even wondering anxiously 
How's it all going to turn out? What's going to happen? And maybe the word of Jesus for you is very simply verse 20. It is I. Don't be afraid. It's me. You don't have to be afraid. I'm with you. I'm involved. And it was not in the stable, calm shores, but the midst of the storm that they saw the power of Jesus. They heard a word from Jesus. Look at verse 21. It says, And then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So watch this. As they gladly welcomed Jesus aboard in the midst of the storm, more miracles start to unfold at that point as well, showing Jesus' power. Mark 6 tells us that as they take Jesus into the boat, Mark 6 says, the storm and the wind ceased. The idea is as soon as Jesus got on board, things went immediately calm and peace came over the situation. The other accounts say the disciples were greatly amazed beyond measure and said, truly you are the Son of God, and they worshiped. So interesting to see what happens. Again, for a second time now, the disciples see that Jesus has authority over all creation. Any dangerous or threatening thing, that he has complete control, and his presence can bring peace and calm to any out-of-control situation. What is our role? To willingly get Jesus on board. Our role is very simply to invite Jesus into the boat, whatever we're journeying through, whatever the storm is, because he's the Lord of peace, and by his power, he can cause things to settle down. He can make things become calm again and come back under control. Jesus says, John 14, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And therefore he can overcome anything we deal with in this world. Now as they willingly receive Jesus on board in the midst of this storm, look what happens at the end of verse 21, the text there. It says, immediately, as Jesus comes on board, immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Look how this closes here. They immediately are transported miraculously out of the struggle and they arrive at the intended and desired destination by just receiving Jesus on board. Another miracle. Now, I look at that and it shows me something wonderful. First of all, the best way to avoid a shipwreck when storms come into your life is to get Jesus on board. As soon as the storm starts, Lord, please get on board. Please, Lord. Lord, if you don't get on board and captain the ship, I am heading right for the rocks. Lord, please. Please, Lord, I ask you into this situation. I'm inviting you into this situation. Willingly, Lord, please. I'm inviting you on board because I don't want a shipwreck in the storm, Lord. I can't handle it. And I see another beautiful thing, which is this, is the sooner you and I welcome the Lord's presence on board in whatever you're going through, the sooner you welcome the Lord on board, the sooner you will likely arrive at your intended and desired destination. Or shall I better say, the sooner you get Jesus on board, the sooner you invite him on board, the sooner you will arrive at his intended and desired destination for you, which is where we want to be. That's where we want to be because he has the power to make things happen much more quickly and much more easily than we can imagine. You know, great question I asked at the beginning, is it not? What matters most? I would say perhaps the story here teaches us that what matters most is staying in the will of God and seeing more about Jesus, seeing who he is because that's the thing that's truly life-changing. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray together.